This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condice Presley. February may be the shortest month of the year, but it is the month where we focus on two critically important issues in our community. A little later, we'll take a focus on black history and what kind of job our schools are doing in teaching our students about slavery. But first, we want to talk about your heart, specifically your health, because February is Heart Health Month. I hope you saw lots of pictures across social media last Friday, which was uh, Go Red for Women, Heart Healthy Day. And we want to talk about heart health not only for women, although it is incredibly important, but also for men. Joining us is Dr. Michael Toka. He is with Total Cardiology of Atlanta and is affiliated with the Fulton DeKalb Hospital Authority, uh, the folks who own the Grady Healthcare System. And Dr. Toka, thanks for taking time out of your, your busy day of saving lives to spend some time with us. Thank you for inviting me. So things that are important for us to know about our heart health. You said we need to know our numbers. What does that mean? Uh, it's, it's so important that we play an active role in taking care of our own health. Uh, it's one of those things where all of us need to not only find the right physicians and find the right healthcare professionals, but also we need to be personally responsible for knowing our blood pressure, knowing our uh, you know, for those with heart problems, knowing their ejection fraction, how well their heart is squeezing. For those who are diabetic, knowing how their blood sugars are. It's so important that we know our numbers and personally take an interest in our own health care. Do you find that by the time you're seeing a patient, that is the one thing that person has not done, pay attention to their own health care? Uh, it does depend on the patient, but I would say that that one thing, one one tragedy in terms of what I do is that I see patients oftentimes after they've had a, ma- a major heart attack or after they've had a stroke or after they've had uh, been found to have a heart that's squeezing very poorly, whereas really these are things that need to start in terms of heart, heart health and you know doing the right things before those things happen to try to prevent them rather than after there's a crisis. Okay, let's start with probably the most obvious thing. Talk to us about diet, weight, and our health. Excellent. Yeah, diet and exercise is one of the first things to start with. Um, you know, it's what's recommended is that we, in terms of exercise, that we do at least three uh, sessions a week where we're doing aerobic activity. So we're doing exercise like walking or running or swimming or biking at least three times a week, at least for 30 minutes and doing those things. And that's really for everyone. And then uh, in terms of diet, in terms of general rules, there's a lot of specific things that we each have to do to try to find out what will work for us. But in terms of diet, the you know sort of avoiding fried foods, avoiding salt, adding salt to our food because there's already a lot of salt in the food, avoiding a lot of sugar in desserts, and then trying to eat more vegetables because all of us don't eat enough vegetables. So what message do you give to listeners in our community who hear this and say, yes, I know I'm supposed to eat more fruits and fresh vegetables, but I can't get them in my neighborhood at my local grocery store? Which is, is a major problem with throughout the whole country, the food deserts. And it's one of those things where, one, as a society, we have to increase the access to those types of foods. But two, uh, sometimes we have to go out of our way to make sure of our own health. And one thing you know, I always say to patients is if you have to take one medicine or if you have to drive 10 miles further to get the foods that are going to be life-sustaining that may make you live 10 more years, it's worth doing. Now, when you were talking about exercise, 30 minutes, three times a week, the primary benefit to the body is what? So, so there's there, let me uh, break down exercise into two different areas. One is sort of the amount of steps you do. 
And so a lot of people have, you know, watches and phones and other things that record how many steps they do. So one is just making sure that you're getting enough activity each day. So setting a target for the number of steps, it may be 5,000, maybe 7,000, maybe 10,000, uh, depending on the person, but setting a target and making sure every day that you meet those targets. That's one type of exercise. And then the other type of exercise is actively getting the heart rate up for 30 minutes, three times a week. Many people will say, you know, I'm active at work or I do things at work. But for most of us at work, it doesn't include actively exercising for 30 minutes in a row, um, you know, getting the heart rate up. And so what that exercise does, if we just think about like lifting weights, builds your biceps, you know, exercise for those 30 minutes a day, 30 minutes, three, at least three times a week increases the strength of your heart. Is it ever too late to begin to do that? It's never too late. It's never too late. I have a, a 95-year-old patient who exercises every day. Blood pressure. We hear in the news different numbers that should be our target range. Can you clear that up for us? And there's been a, uh, a lot of modification over time in terms of what those target blood pressures are. All of the more, a lot of the more recent data shows us that lower is better. And so, you know, while some of the specific targets relate to that individual and that person, but in general, we want all of our blood pressures to be below 140 over 90. And so to do that, one key is avoiding salt in the diet. The second key is, is you know, doing the exercise, which also reduces the blood pressure. And then thirdly, if you require blood pressure medicine, taking the blood pressure medicine every day. Um, because if you miss days or other things, the blood pressure medicine is not in your system. And for those days, your blood pressure may be very high. And so, you know, really taking those medicines every day if they're necessary. And, and sometimes one of the hardest things, which we were just talking about, is that even sometimes when you do all the right things, when you're exercising, when you're eating a healthy diet and those things, sometimes your blood pressure can still be high and you can still need a medicine because of genetics and other things. And so some things are beyond our control. And it's important that we do everything to try to, you know, on our part to try to control it, but also sometimes a medicine is necessary. One illness that is quite prevalent in the African-American community is that of diabetes. And so mm -hmm. it's important to pay attention to your blood sugar. Tell us what we need to know about that and how frequently individuals with diabetes should be checking their sugar. That's, that's a great question because diabetes causes uh, many systemic problems throughout the, the entire body. And so it's not just problems with the heart, but also risk of stroke, also changes in vision, uh, changes in the va in vascular disease where people may lose their feet and that type of thing. So it's very important to really pay attention to the risk of diabetes and to controlling, uh, you know, the blood sugar. For diabetes, one if you're going to keep and look at one number, one number is looking at what's called the hemoglobin A1C, which is looking at the blood sugar over time. So instead of just one time what the measurement is, looking at it over a period of time to try to see where that blood sugar has been running. And if that's high, that tells us that the blood sugar has been is, is been too high over a period of time. The things that we can do to try to better control the blood pressure or decrease our risk of diabetes really relate to the diet and exercise. Um, the weight is very related to, specifically with diabetes, the, uh, how our insulin works and how, how high our blood sugars are. And so really focusing on the diet and exercise being even, ends up being even more important with diabetes. Doctor, recognizing that all of these numbers are individual to each of us because of our family histories and our, act, our activities and other things, what are the recommended target ranges for a person's A1C? And so that also has changed a little bit over time. In general, again, these things can be individual, but about six and a half to seven in that range, we want people's hemoglobin A1C. And routinely, I'll see patients with hemoglobin A1Cs, which are much, much higher in the 13 or 14 range. And it's one of those things that the, the effects of diabetes become that much more the more poorly controlled the blood sugar is. And so for those with diabetes or a risk or family history of diabetes, we have to be very 
careful about controlling the the uh, the things that may lead to higher blood sugars. I've heard sometimes people say that they are pre-diabetic. What does that mean? And is that can you fix that and go non-diabetic altogether? And so, so many of us may have a predisposition towards diabetes, and the blood sugars may be elevated when we look at measurements like that hemoglobin A1C. And when you're pre-diabetic, it says you're at particular risk. We've seen, it says that on some measurement, we've seen elevated blood sugars, and you're at particular risk for having, for going on to, you know, the, the full spectrum of diabetes. And it says that you even have to be much more meticulous about the healthy diet, the exercise, and making sure that blood, and then monitoring that blood sugar relatively frequently. When we talk about heart disease and heart attacks, it's often described as you have this pressing anvil-like weight on your chest or you're told that you're having pain in your left arm. But I understand for women, we present with an entirely different set of symptoms when we are having a heart attack. Can you can you set that up, set the table for us there and Tell us what's different about women and how we can be better advocates for ourselves in the doctor's office or in the emergency room if one should think she is having a heart attack. Uh, that's that's another great point because one of the things that we try to stress in in the practice in total cardiology and in other places is that you know everyone's an individual and sometimes we hear things on TV or see things on the news that are one way for a heart attack to present or one way to treat blood pressure where really everything has to be, is, is very individual and for treatments has to be tailored towards an individual. Uh, we often see with women that that typical description of chest pain is not the way that women present with heart attacks. And so sometimes people don't get evaluated or women don't get evaluated because they assume that it's not a heart attack. And it's one of those things where if there's, you know, it can be from signs of pressure or heaviness in the chest. It could also be changes in the breathing pattern or not just or just not being able to exercise as much as uh, you could previously. Any of those things could relate to, you know, changes or heart disease and are important to get looked at by your primary doctor or cardiologist. Specifically, what I find with the, the women that I see is that they are um, oftentimes that they're doing a phenomenal job taking care of everyone else, all of the family members, friends, everyone else. And they're doing so much for other people that they're not taking the time to take care of themselves. And I always stress to all of my patients, but my female patients, to really make sure they're taking the time to take care of themselves and not just everyone else. Um, because I think that sometimes that can, you know, if you're not around to help take care of everyone else, then, you know, it's not, you can't be helpful. And so really taking that time to make sure your health is taken care of, to make sure you have the time to watch what you're eating, make sure you have the time to exercise and, uh, you know, taking care of you know, your own health concerns. So what are the signs of a heart attack? Uh, so it can present in different ways in different people. Commonly, we think about pain or pressure in the chest, sometimes which can radiate to the left arm. We can also think about change in the breathing pattern, feeling short of breath or that type of thing. Uh, sometimes, and, and as I said, sometimes for people, it's that they used to walk a mile every day, and now when they walk half a mile, they, they can't do it. They either feel pressure or they just feel like they can't go further. And a lot of times that can be suggestive of heart disease. What about indigestion. So oftentimes, again, because these symptoms can all be similar, a lot of times people will say, I felt like I was having indigestion when really they were having a heart attack. And so it's one of those things that certainly if something is continues and is persistent, and certainly if something isn't treated with, you know, sort of Tums and that type of thing, then it's important that people get it evaluated. If there's any sort of chest pressure or chest pain that's of concern, I wouldn't assume it's indigestion. I would get it checked out. And what about unusual teeth pain, especially in women? 
Uh, sometimes, and again, many of the presentations in women can be different than what we sort of think of as a standard. And sometimes it can present as, as something as simple as teeth, uh, pain in different teeth. And that's actually a, what we'd say is a, is a sign of a blockage in the heart and anginal equivalent. Dr. Toker, what is the one thing somebody listening to us right now can do to improve their heart health today? Um, I think one of the things is just accountability. So fi- be it using your phone to count your steps every day, finding a partner to walk with, an accountability partner, finding your neighbor or your friend or your spouse and saying, we're going to walk every Monday, Wednesday, Friday and sticking to that schedule. Finding someone who says, you know, we're going to watch, you know, if you're, you and your spouse say we're going to watch what we eat and not have desserts in the house or we're going to say we're only going to eat fried food once a month. But oftentimes it's either finding using a a device that measures how many steps you do or finding a neighbor or a friend or someone who's going to agree to, you know, sort of be accountable for these things with you. And uh, doing those things end up being very important. And then, of course, knowing your numbers and going to your physician. What are your thoughts on the various weight loss plans that we may read about in magazines or see advertised on television, ways to encourage you to, to take the weight off without exercise? Uh, weight loss is obviously a big issue and comes up quite a bit. Uh, di- I always tell patients that diets and things are not what you want to do. What you want to do is make sustainable life changes. And so I would much rather a patient of mine make a small change that they're going to make for the rest of their life than make a big change that they're going to make for 30 days. And so when people say, I'm going to stop eating all carbohydrates, I'm going to stop doing these things, I would much rather a patient say, I'm going to only eat fried food once a month, and that's the only change I'm going to make for right now. And then I'm going to move on to the next change once I feel comfortable with that. But making life changes that last for a lifetime, be they in relation to healthy eating or be they in relation to exercise. In terms of weight loss specifically, it's about 70% diet in terms of what we eat and in terms of the quantity that we eat. And then it's about 30% exercise. So both are really important. And for most of us, uh, it requires both diet and exercise. And all of the fad diets and the programs that they show late at night on TV, um, I would not recommend most of those things just because oftentimes those are things that uh, either don't work at all or work for a shorter period of time. I have seen a lot of patients have success with some of the, you know, the meal plan diets, uh, be it Weight Watchers, be it other ones. And a lot of patients have had success with those. The key is you have to have a plan to either stick with that diet or transition to a another diet. So, but finding the right system that's going to be right for you, because again, it's very individual. And part of that is making a plan and knowing what you're going to eat when, because as we like to say, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. Dr. Toka, if our listeners don't remember anything else about our conversation today, what would you have them to take away with them? I think most important is that we all only have one heart and we all only have one body and we need to take care of it uh, knowing that's the case. And we want to prevent problems before they happen rather than, uh, you know, seek out help once we have problems. And so sort of being active about knowing your numbers, being active about eating a healthy diet, being active about exercising before it's a crisis situation rather than after. Dr. Michael Toker with Total Cardiology of Atlanta, working with the Fulton DeKalb Hospital Authority, the owner of the Grady Health System. Thank you so much for spending time with us to talk to us about a very critical subject. It's our heart. Thank you very much. The Southern Poverty Law Center wanted to know, how do we teach slavery in U.S. schools? A new report just out finds the answer is not very well. We're joined by Maureen Costello. She is the director of teaching tolerance at the Southern Poverty Law Center and knows a lot about this report. Oh, thank you, Condis. Yes, well, well. 
we spent the last year asking ourselves the question, what do students know, what do teachers teach, what's in the textbooks, and what's in the state standards? And as you pointed out, what we learned is that we are not doing a very good job teaching about American slavery, and especially about how it continues to impact us today. Why is that? Is it just because there are those who just don't want to remember that part of American history? That's largely it. We like, as Americans, to believe that, you know, we started out perfect and we've just gotten more perfect ever since, to quote the words in the preamble of the Constitution about a more perfect union. Um, We start out often teaching children about the good news, people like Harriet Tubman or the Underground Railroad. When we finally do teach about slavery, we tend to emphasize the people who fought it, the abolitionists. We talk about the fact that it ended after the Civil War with these wonderful congressional uh, efforts and the constitutional amendments, and then it's over. And what we don't do very well is talk about how it really was a national institution, how enslaved people built this country and their wealth built this country, and how the issues of racial inequality today really can be traced right back to the persistence effects of that institution. Is it correct that only 8% of high school seniors could identify slavery as indeed the central cause of the Civil War? That is true. Uh, The most popular answer was that it was taxes, followed by states' rights, and then I think about 15% said they were just not sure. But if you go deeper with the issue of states' rights, that should take you to the issue of slavery. Exactly, and that's one of the problems that we have when We talk about the Civil War or even the first half of the 19th century. Teachers talk about the rise of sectionalism, or they talk about states' rights. And they talk about slavery only to the extent that it is a political or an economic factor, Um, but not about the power that it had to drive all of those other things. And they all boil down to whether or not you depended on enslaved labor or free labor. And again, fewer than half in this study knew the correct answer that during the American Revolution, slavery was legal in all of the colonies? That is true. Most American students and most textbooks really teach that it's a Southern thing. And yet, in, I, I lived in New York for many, many years, and I taught in New York, And New York did not end slavery until 1827. I doubt there are many New York students who know that. Or that there was an amendment to the unit, or that there was an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that indeed was the formal end to slavery in the United States. And that's significant because there's a bookend there. Most people don't, most kids don't realize that uh, it took a constitutional amendment to end slavery, and at the other end, they don't understand how the original Constitution enshrined slavery and gave extra power and extra privileges to the slaveholding states. Why is this information not in our textbooks in our classrooms? Well, part of it is that a lot of the, uh, well, the story was written by the winners. (laughs) Basically, for the same reason that we have Confederate statues all over the place, uh, we tell the story of ourselves as good people. We had a bad institution. We ended it. It's over. Uh, the It's uncomfortable history. Um, 
the more interesting history about the actual lives of enslaved people and their own stories is has only been really recently kind of unearthed and entered into the scholarship. But largely, it's just not a story we like to tell about ourselves. Why do you argue that it is important to tell this story about ourselves? Because here we are 150 years after the passage of the Reconstruction Amendments, and we still face gaping racial inequality um, in mass incarceration, in housing, in education. Only today I read a study about how uh, black and brown children are going to schools where they're exposed to high levels of toxins. Um, so we're facing still profound inequality. We're seeing a rise in, in white nationalism. And you have major research uh, groups like Pew telling us that a majority of white Americans don't think that they're, they have any advantages by being white and, in fact, believe that they are the victims of racial discrimination. It means that we basically don't know who we are now and where we came from. And if we're ever really to reconcile and to uh, make the present better, we have to know that it has about the roots in the past. It would seem that in this current political climate, there might not be that much support for your argument. Would you agree? I think that, that that's exactly the reason that we have to do it, because it, 90% of teachers agree that it needs to be done, that children need to uh, learn about slavery, and what they say is they don't have the support and the, and the knowledge. We have to start. So how do people make that happen? I know your report says that, as you just said, more than half of the teachers reported that they were not happy with their textbooks. Almost half said the states aren't trying to help. We think that, you know, we've published a, a solution at the same time that we've published the report. We worked with academics to come up with what we think is a very fine framework for what students should know, and we've also added how teachers can teach it. Uh, and what we hope is that publishers will pay attention to the framework, that states will adopt it as they uh, develop standards and develop guidance for teachers and develop curriculum. And in the 35 states that are local control states, that school districts and schools pay attention to it as they develop curriculum. Um, we think that teachers need a lot of support and professional development, both in what to teach and also how to teach and how to talk about race. But, you know, we, we spend a lot of time paying attention to how to teach math and how to teach reading and what we should teach. We should do this about our own history. Tell us a little bit more, Maureen, about teaching tolerance. Well, Teaching Tolerance has been around for a little over a quarter century. Our mission is to help educators prepare young people to be active participants in a diverse democracy. And we are part of the Southern Poverty Law Center. We uh, provide lessons and curriculum, professional development, and articles for teachers across the country to just help them be uh, more attuned to the needs of diverse students, particularly. Um, we actually, on this project, also have podcasts for the first time, so we're inaugurating our first podcast series. Maureen Costello, how can our listeners find this report from the Southern Poverty Law Center, indeed, if people want to read and know more? They can find the report at splcenter.org. 
And if they're interested in looking at the curriculum materials, they can go to tolerance.org. And they'll find the report after 1030 this morning. Teaching Tolerance Director Maureen Costello on the line with us. It is Black History Month, and their new research finds that we don't teach slavery in schools very well because it's an uncomfortable subject. And again, you argue that's something that now more than ever, it's time to change. Indeed. Maureen Costello, we appreciate your time. We thank you so much, okay? Okay, thank you, Countess. And we're going to close out our program today with a, a very special message, a tribute of sorts, from a frequent guest on Perspectives. Georgia Congressman David Scott, he tells me, in celebration of Black History Month, I would appreciate your sharing my tribute. It includes a poem by Poet Laureate Langston Hughes, that poem called Mother to Son. This is Georgia Congressman David Scott. Well, son, I'll tell you, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It's had tacks in it, splinters, boards torn up, no carpet on the floor, bare. But all the while, I've been a-climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So boy, don't you stop. Don't you sit down on the steps cause you find it's kinda hard. Don't you fall now. For I still climb and I still going on, honey, and life for me ain't been no crystal stair. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, MyAndalusCondo29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective.